0: From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Raj Nation and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast growing startups work with me because they wanna become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Charlottesville, Virginia, and currently residing in Chicago, Illinois. She is the CEO of Jellyvision. Please welcome Amanda Leonard.
1: Please follow me everywhere. <laughs> please. <laughs> please, please, <laughs> please introduce everyone and in all things like that. Hello. How-
0: how about your next like all hands meeting internally? Just like pipe me in like on the conference call right before you start.
1: <laughs> Hilariously, it'll be met with like a smattering of like polite applause because like oh here she's gonna talk about our numbers again. <laughs> 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 so good. Well,
0: friends, foes, ladies and gentlemen, she is Amanda Lannert, as I mentioned, the CEO of Jellyvision, and she's really been a key figure in driving the company since it was founded in 2001. At this stage, she's focusing on company strategy, uh, improving processes to scale operations, partnership development, furthering customer acquisition and more. Jellyvision serves more than 1,500 clients mostly within the Fortune 1000 through their product, Alex, which is an employee decision support platform. And in 2019, 18 million employees and $120 billion worth of healthcare premium decisions were entrusted to their platform, their product, Alex. Today, we are talking about a very interesting topic that might be on a lot of your minds, and that is the idea of the Pivot, which I don't know if anyone knows this better than Jellyvision and particularly Amanda. Amanda, our topic today is pivoting from agency to SaaS. High level. Why is this on your mind? Why is it important to you?
1: I think it's important to me because it's one of the the things I get most sought out for counsel. Like, how did you go from just paying the bills one customer at a time to having a really scalable business? Where, you know, the fundamental reality is uh, oftentimes when you're in a business, you want any dollars, just dollars to stay alive, and then you start to realize not all dollars are created equal. There are some dollars that are, in fact, more valuable than others. And and Jellyvision has gone through you know many many lives. But one of the one of the things we learned is that SaaS is definitely more interesting, more scalable, and more valuable than, than not SaaS. And there are many many lessons learned about how we sort of changed and 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 became the company that we are today, which I'm happy to try to share.
0: We're gonna dive a whole lot more into that as our conversation unfolds. Before we get there, let's learn a little bit more about Amanda, the woman, the myth, the legend, the goat herself, (laughs) as she looks inside like, what are you talking about, me? So uh, Amanda, I'm curious, how many siblings do you have, or maybe the answer is zero, and how do you feel that shaped your um, ability to create relationships?
1: I have uh, two and a half siblings, uh, and I grew up. Uh, I'm 14 months apart from my older brother, uh, five years older than my younger sister, and my family is geographically really dispersed. My sister's in LA, my brother's in Nashville, I'm in Chicago. Like we we live like we don't like each other, but my siblings are are some of my very favorite people on the planet. Uh, I am the least successful of my siblings. Uh, My brother is a Grammy award-winning country music producer. My sister is an executive in a uh, content media and content. And they're hilarious. And, you know, my sister is my best friend. Uh, So family is very important to me. I like noise and fracas in in my own family because of the family I grew up in. Uh, But definitely it's really nice to have blood relatives that you actually like. And I, I'm very lucky in that way. I've been very lucky with family in every aspect in every angle uh, throughout my life.
0: So that's really interesting that you say you're the least successful of your siblings. Uh, it wasn't always you know, the case,
1: but the jerks totally passed me by. I was <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, <laughs>
0: What do you feel then you've maybe gleaned or learned from having a brother who's a Grammy award-winning producer and a sister who's an award-winning uh, creative producer? Like, what do you feel, You, and a creative executive, like, what do you feel you've learned from them even though they don't do the same trade as you?
1: Yeah, my brother is the greatest entrepreneur I know. You know, my dad's a doctor. My mom was a nurse turned stay-at-home mom, uh, turned sort of like various careers in business. But we, we had parents that kind of knew what they wanted to be and then stayed in that lane their whole lives. And my brother was a guy who was at the University of Virginia, dropped out to my parents' great dismay. And We're a family, of like you study, you get the best education you can. And this guy drops out of school, ends up in, at a school called Belmont, which is a country music Christian school in Nashville, and then ends up sort of mixing and engineering music and, and started to save money where then he could build his own studio and then he started producing and now he owns like a, a, you know, a publishing company and just like constantly innovating, constantly using technology, but like relentlessly doing only what he loved and he made it work. So he's one of those guys who says with a slight Southern accent, I haven't worked a day in the last 25 years, even though he works uh-huh. his butt off because he, like, he loves what he does, you know, really just pursued his passion. My sister is one of those people, she's just really smart. She, she brings her whole self to work, has a great sense of humor. But I think if there's any lesson from my siblings, it's you do work hard. We don't cut corners. We are students. We study. We put in, you know, the sweat equity. And then we don't take ourselves seriously. None of my siblings do. They're very, very funny people. You know, they're funny at work. They bring joy to themselves and relationships, but are dead serious about driving forward at work. And then I also think that there are good lessons that you should take a good vacation or two. We vacation together a lot and we're really fun on vacation. So I think the lesson is you have to balance the ground with like letting your hair down and, and having some fun too.
0: I say balance the ground with letting your hair down. Was that an yeah. intentional rhyme? <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell your brother to recommend that one of the artists that he works with put that in a lyric. That sounds like a perfect lyric in a country song. Girl, balance the ground, let your hair down. And that's my country music accent. <laughs> you Let's talk for a second about, you mentioned you know that idea of taking the vacation every now and then. Kind of like broad view, what's your perspective on work and how work should be treated? And in fact, maybe a more pointed way I can ask that is, do you believe that your work should be your passion?
1: So I think it helps. Um, but my aspirations are sort of, A little bit simpler. I want to do work I'm proud of with people I like and respect. And I know that you're supposed to say my goal is to fundamentally transform the world in X, Y, and Z ways, or I'm relentlessly focused against like sending a rocket to Mars or living on Mars or whatever the case is. But like, I am someone who really is driven by doing work I'm proud of with people I like and respect. And that's been sort of the theme of like pursuing people. And I can really find anything interesting if I spend enough time doing it. But I also am a definite sort of the student mindset because of the way I was brought up. Like I like to learn, I like to grow, I like to look for patterns, I like sort of pick up new things and I am willing to do the work to teach myself. Like the Google is amazing. The stuff you can learn on the Google is is crazy. So I I don't think you necessarily have to say what I care about in in isolation has to be what I do. But I think you have to learn how to have curiosity and work ethic and be able to set goals enough that you can get passionate about whatever it is that you're doing. Really, anything can ultimately be interesting, can feel important if you work with people who have passion and and intensity and and set goals and achieve goals and celebrate it. so I don't, I don't think you have to say, you know, what I really like is watching Netflix. And therefore, if I don't have a career watching Netflix, I haven't lived <laughs> my best life. Like your career could be in like grocery store supply chain logistics. But if you do it with people who are constant self-learners, who get better and better and can celebrate that, I mean, you can have a great career doing anything. And I also think, you know, uh, about careers. I spend a lot of time thinking about what creates energy, which sounds much more new, agey and bohemian than I am. But I do think about what are the things I do that create energy and sort of pursuing that. And then what are the things that like take away energy and trying to delegate those where I can so that you know, I, I end a day and I'm still thinking about work and that's okay versus thinking about work because I'm in a tailspin. I think about managing not just time, but managing energy and, and making sure that you know, I get revved up at the end of the day versus exhausted.
0: I like that energy talk, and if you want to get bohemian, I can bring out the yoga teacher side of me, no problem. You mentioned, you know, people you care about, and I got to tell you this quick story, and it's sort of a confession to make here. So this year, this past year, notwithstanding because of COVID, the previous three years, my rec softball team has played the Jellyvision softball team, like every year, and (laughs) I, it was like two years ago I think I was trying to figure out what's a way I can heckle this team like from the field because I I, you know, I just like crack jokes and try to like get, get them to like laugh while they're swinging the bat and I may have no idea who I am that I am like operating the tech world or anything like that and so I go uh, when your team was batting I go we want a batter not Amanda Lannert <laughs> and they were like Who is this guy? How do you know who our CEO is?
1: (laughs) And they're like, us too. (laughs) 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 Same. Same here. Now, uh, the Jellyvision, this is, it's kind of a, it's not Jellyvision. I wouldn't say that we're the lovable losers, but our softball team was. The (laughs) softball team at Jellyvision had a reputation for sucking and being so nice about it. Always good sportsmen and women. Always pleasant on the field. Always polite. Always, you know, laughing and having a good time. But like, we lost every game for more than a season in a row. And I remember when we finally won, I was kind of sad. <laughs> I thought it was like it's one thing to be a good sportsman when you're like the best, you know, in the planet. It's another thing to have like character when things are hard and when you're like, oh, here we go again. Let's lose again. Uh, and so. I did. I did have. Uh, I do have a lot of love for like the lovable losers of of, of of yore. And now I think we win. You know, as much as we lose, if not sometimes more. We made it to the playoffs <laughs> a couple times, and you know I went. They were always
0: was, super fun to play against. Yeah, team, you team, you don't know no Jack them. team, and there was also like the Jellyvision Part Two team, and. I thought it was really funny. It was like, when, after like doing that heckle a couple of rounds, through, they were like, so like we're hiring. Do you want like a job application? Cause like maybe we could use you. So maybe speaking to like the character and the niceness, they definitely were exuding that. And we're also always happy to offer our team their beers. Yeah.
1: So nice. Yeah. Now I'm really lucky. I work with really nice people.
0: Uh, yeah, and, and I can totally tell that. And that's probably perhaps is what sort of like the pivot. So, you know, you mentioned at least with the softball team, you had some really hard years of losing a lot. Maybe let's let's talk about a little bit of the hard stuff now with our main topic, which is this idea of pivoting from agency to SaaS. I'm at least semi-familiar with the jelly vision story, but maybe you could just do the hypers like speed version talking us through like the jelly vision of old and yeah. the product you sold and who you sold it to versus... Jelly Vision of today that most yeah. people are familiar with. So
1: there there are even, you know, a 10, 15 years prior that I'm gonna clip off and really just start about Jelly Vision from the late 90s. So I joined Jellyvision, a company founded by Harry Gottlieb, at the height of its gaming days, where we made games on these things called CD-ROMs that split <laughs> into your that held data and slid into your computer. So we made you Don't Know Jack and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and all kinds of games that would even end up being in your Cheerios box. Like the, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire CD-ROM was the fastest selling CD-ROM of all time. I had it. And, and You Don't Know Jack was just a massive franchise. It ended up spawning not just you know console games and online games and 11 CD-ROMs, but also a short-lived television show. On, on MTV, right? Prime oh, time. oh no. Okay. Prime Time <laughs> starring Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee-wee Herman. Can't make wow. it up.
0: I remember this Uh, show.
1: So that's the company I joined. I joined when Jellyvision was making games. uh, But when the CD-ROM market died, and it died quickly because of this thing called the internet, where price points went from $30 to $20 to $10 to to $5 in 18 months, so too did our business in gaming. So as we're kind of figuring out, all right, then there's the dot-com explosion, uh, uh, bust, and what do we do? How are we going to finance this business as games and people but not yet money, we're moving online, what do we do? And the founder is like, I never really liked gaming in the first place, we sort of just got lucky, and I mean like extraordinarily lucky. Where Harry created You Don't Know Jack and the company owned it. So we saw royalties, we saw recurring revenue, we knew the value of IP. Not just getting paid to build games, but the value of owning IP. And I said, what I want to do is go from creating virtual game show hosts in a B2C gaming space on CD-ROMs to creating virtual advisors in a B2B enterprise space on the interwebs. Our sort of thesis of the company that then was rebooted, sort of the spawn of the gaming company, the company I run today, was designed to create virtual advisors to go to where there's furrowed brow, where people are trying to do something complicated and boring, but important, and we'll talk them through it. But we always wanted to get paid for the value we created, not for our time and materials. We always wanted to have scalable and recurring revenue. So new lease on life, a little capital was raised, new purpose, reboot this company, and then proceed to spend the better part of a decade, seven years, going sideways, never getting traction, but managing to just not run out of money, uh, despite a few more near-death experiences. And I remember being in a board meeting saying, we have this approach to interactivity. We have the ability to solve problems around confusion. We have the problem to walk people through complicated you know, processes. We know how to persuade and entertain, which gets people to pay attention. But here's the problem: We walk like a duck meeting an agency. We sell in service like a duck meeting an agency. We show up to meetings like a duck meeting an agency, but we charge like a software company, and companies are saying we're making it too hard to do business with them. So I think we should just really start to operate like an agency. And that was in sort of 2008, 2009. And the second we did that, our business really grew and we became a thriving boutique agency. And there are all kinds of things that are fun and great about it. But what it doesn't create is like really material recurring revenue. And you have IP fights all the time as an agency where it's like, but who's really getting fair value for the the IP we're creating? And so it wasn't until Alex that we finally landed on something that we could create, we could own, and really created a scalable recurring revenue, which is the Alex platform. But I really want to talk about what we learned in that agency time and how we were able to get to Alex, which is a very different business. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. So it was gaming company on CD-ROMs, agency, boutique web-based agency, SaaS company that is now scaling and is the company we are today.
0: Yeah, thanks. Th- thanks for recapping that. And and when you made that first transition into, hey, we're going to create, let's call them custom virtual advisors to all different types of companies who need to explain technical, hard to explain things to their employee base or some stakeholders. So we're going to give them these like mascots, essentially, that help guide through the process. Would you say in that version of the company? despite your challenges, maybe operationally, would you say you had ultimately achieved product market fit with that version of the company?
1: Yes, uh, would it ever have been a billion dollar business? No, we were largely a solution in search of a problem. We had figured out a unique approach to interactivity and we knew we knew the you know, there had to be complexity, there had to be choice, you know, there had to be this moment of employees, or users rather looking at your website going, I don't, what's right for me? What am I supposed to do here? Uh, And so we got really good at kind of understanding where where are call centers costing you a lot of money and people are saying the same thing. Where are there inefficiencies in a sales process where reps are saying the same thing over and over? Mm. Our experiences can automate that, have high-touch, extremely delightful experiences, but are automated, available, you know, 365, 24-7, et cetera, um, and then can allow you to sort of do higher value efforts with live people. So we got good at selling a solution in search of a problem. And a lot of what we did as an agency was learn how to sell whatever your problem is, here's our solution, and you wanna trust your dreams and your problems with us. Like project-based business, where we wouldn't also then build your website and also do this, so really sort of a unique, uh, niche approach to, to agency business where we didn't want to be your agency of record. And we didn't want to build your entire website and every you know landing page they're in. We wanted to solve a specific problem, a really big, gnarly, valuable problem. Uh, and we did it one-off, 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 where we would also uh, often get repeat business and then small, uh, charge a small ongoing fee for hosting, maintenance, change orders, analytics, things like that. Mm-hmm. But that was ba- basically the business. Hey, big company who's trying to sell something or explain something really complicated. Can simulating a conversation with a robot or software and the user sitting in front of a screen help you create velocity in a sale, help you match students to the college that's right for them, help you understand uh, you're having problems sleeping. Is it a neurological problem, a psychiatric problem, or should you see your general care physician? These kinds of like decision moments we were automating and building software that helps solve those problems around navigation and comprehension online.
0: So given that you you do believe you did achieve product market fit in that version of the company, the boutique agency version, you know, perhaps you can maybe just extract a lesson from that for the listeners, because I think the big goal of a startup the first few years is achieve product market fit. But I think you're making a case that product market fit is not necessarily the entire picture because you can get there, but still maybe be building the wrong company. So what would be like the indicators that say you need to look at these things alongside that, that PM fit.
1: Yeah, so let's break down sort of like what is product market fit to me. I think product market fit is when you can sell the same thing over and over to satisfied customers repeatedly. Mm. And while we would build custom solutions, it was kind of the same bucket of solutions. So we had to do a lot of work for every sale beyond the sale itself. We had to like build the software, but it was sort of repeatedly. The problem The problem was it was niche. It was never going to be a big business, and this was a company that was built on aspirations of being a big business. We had raised venture capital. There are two ways to finance a business. It's two types of VCs, in fact: one, venture capitalists; two, vested customers. We could have stayed a boutique business that's just happy to pay the bills, happy to have employees. But there was there was you know aspiration for impact, for scale, for outcome, for for. Like not just you know having a ragtag band, but to like do something big and meaningful. So once you cross the line and become venture backed, you, you make a deal. you get some capital to, to spend, you get to hire more people, you get to try new things, you get to innovate with business models and take more risks. But there is expectation of growth and outsized return that doesn't allow for success to be measured as a boutique business that pays its bills years after year because that's what we had. There was an expectation, a, a hunger to say, we wanna get paid not for just you know, our salaries, but for the value that we create. We wanna be able to create you know, something of massive reach and impact. We don't wanna help some, we wanna help lots. And it's really, really hard to do. Like one of the challenges, I mean, agencies are struggling right now, professional services firms are struggling because the more you grow, the more risk you assume. And the more you need to fill the coffers with work just to pay bills and then to grow more you're assuming more risk and then it becomes a sort of endless cycle of like never having like real capital to innovate because you're always having to like fill top of funnel with more projects Um, and and we wanted to be able to create something that was more scalable that we could win based on the value we created versus just having to do more work, more work, more work, more sort of Mm. billable hours. uh, the The risks of being able to sequence projects to have you know the right customers lined up at the right time wasn't like the most interesting problem to solve people solve it we solved it we had a, a meaningful agency business but having owned intellectual property like having owned you don't know jack and have gotten those recurring revenues that got us through bumpy days so there's got to be a way to create a better tail for the business where we participate in the value we're creating. And that's what ultimately drove us to Alex, and it's just a very different business model, uh, sort of different ethos and different PL,
0: like mm.
1: different different growth. It's just it's just easier to grow once you have project market product market fit with a SaaS business than it is with a services business, in my experience.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you shared that because it's it's something that for me personally, you know, as a small you know one two person agency right now, it's something I constantly think about, which is. Growth is dependent on more time put in, uh, right? And more projects, not necessarily on repeat value of an existing asset uh, or or recurring value of an existing asset. Do you think there's any room here for? um, So, one of the phrases I like to sort of pontificate on is there's product market fit, but perhaps we should be instead or in conjunction with looking at this idea of problem market fit. Now you said initially you were a solution in search of a problem and I'm just curious to get your reaction to that idea of problem market fit being one of the pursuits.
1: I I think that's a very interesting shift because as we've become a SaaS company, rather than saying we have this form factor that we use to solve problems, might it apply to your problems? We have now said we have customers that we deeply value, appreciate and want to really help make more successful. And we're shifting to saying, what other problems do you have that are you're prioritizing that you need help with? And our solutions are evolving away from the one form factor because our sort of North Star is no longer the sort of approach to interactivity. Our North Star are now our customers and their problems. Mm-hmm. And we are being a lot more fluid and flexible about using our powers and the talents of our people to serve problems in more creative and more flexible ways. We, in the last year, have shipped two new products that have nothing to do with that robot simulating a conversation with you, um, interactive conversation. We've built, you know, web apps. We've built chat features. We, we really are, are, are sort of North Star or the axis against which we move right now, our customers and the problems that they want help from us to solve. And we're using the best approach possible Understanding users and their mind frame and their appetite for spending time and how they best learn like that is now we're being a lot more flexible about it because really our approach to interactivity was our differentiation as an agency and now our unique ability to solve problems in healthcare around benefits confusion is is our sort of, you know, focusing lens moving forward
0: it sounds like you're really looking to the customer base to drive the innovation of the company as opposed to saying here's what we think would be best for these customers let's layer it on top of them
1: yeah and it, it it's the agency days like we learned that we're we're selling ourselves we're selling the experience of working with us as much as we're selling the ultimate solution, the deliverable that you pay for, when we're, you're an embedded boutique agency and you're building something from the ground up, it's very different than, you know, parachutating your solution. Here's the solution. Thank you for buying it out of the box. But that sort of the mindset and the practices and the experience creation around being a great partner to customers has served us really well as we moved into SaaS, where we, we think deeply about customers one-to-one, but still one-to-many. And it is, it is a less intimate experience. When you're an agency and you sit down and you get a customer who's ready to roll, they will tell you exactly what they want. They will tell you exactly what they need. They will tell you exactly what they'll invest for X, Y, and Z. And it's much, much harder to listen at scale. Now we, have, we have almost 2,000 customers this year. It is much, much harder to listen intimately at scale. And, and that's, <laughs> so, oops, so sorry of my dog. Um, sh- 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 killer, okay. Um, and the name is Killer. Is, no, no. My <laughs> <laughs> name is Lola, but she is defending my house right now. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So
0: 2020. This um. has been years past. This has actually been part podcast, part dog cast. Uh, we did one in someone's home one time where the dog was just like all over the microphone <laughs> for the whole episode. So this is nothing new.
1: It's <laughs> oh, crazy this just happened. I just did this. I was like, kids, I'm being recorded. Please upstairs. Thank you. <laughs> 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 <Not now. laughs> All right. Sass. Yes. <laughs> so I-
0: <laughs> we were talking about sort of the idea of the sale and the sale process that you were noticing where like listening is different.
1: Yeah. And, and it just let me try to give you an example of what I mean by like the experiences we used to create. So, so much is like getting to know your customer, getting to know their teams, understanding their hot buttons, how they make decisions, how to get something approved. And, and we've brought that sort of notion of, of experience creation into how we sell at scale, where you have less time, and there's volume, you know, reps talk to two, three hundred customers a year, instead of, two to three customers a year. Like it's just a very different level of scale, but we still try to remember those lessons of like how to curate delight. So for example, back when we used to be able to leave our houses and not have our dogs in our up meetings, there was this moment of where you'd walk into someone else's office and you would be setting up the presentation where you're trying to put your best foot forward, but you have to futz. You're futzing with their Wi-Fi or you're futzing with their projector or there's just this moment of like awkward, you don't know me, and it's this awkward cover. And so we sort of said, understanding that our our job is to make people like us and trust us, to have them let down their guard so they'll tell us the truth so then we can actually be helpful. We created this placemat that sits in front of everybody who's a participant in the meeting. And the placemat does a couple of things. First, it has the name, job description, and a little brief bio about everybody in the room. So you know you do that moment of introduction, and then you instantly forget who everybody is? <laughs> we solve for that. The second thing is we have the agenda. So it's really clear about why am I here? What am I doing? It's very clear. And then the third thing is there's like a connect-the-dots like doodling sketchpad. So as we're futzing, we're like, got you covered. We huh. do connect the connect-the-dots figure it out. And it's, it's fun to see people, you know, be fun and do it where you can have like a C suite, you know, a, a executive at a really big company like, Oh, I see I see what it is. And, and playing along because it is one of the most forgotten facts in business that goes from services to SaaS. The most forgotten fact in business is that we're all human. Yeah. Companies don't buy from companies, people buy from people, you know, employees, don't quit companies. People quit their bosses, right? And companies don't innovate. People do. And when you're an agency and you're working deeply with one customer at a time on exactly what's troubling them in the most custom of ways, you learn a lot about, about company structure and, and how what people worry about at work and how things get done. And then you can bring that into SAS and scale it in these sort of like moments that that are authentically felt but less manual labor than mm-hmm. than an agency is and that's sort of an example of you know how things stretch when you when you really start to go from you know 2 to 200 3 to 300 which is what happens in SAS.
0: Yeah, I mean I I, I love that sort of personal story you share or the, the, the ability to like add the personal touch there. It's something I'm a big advocate of. I'm always talking to my clients and the quote unquote community at large about the importance of like having some level of like entertainment or being able to delight them in a specific way and oftentimes like you know some pushback I'll get is oh well we sell into enterprise blank and they won't respond well to that and I'm like do you really think just because this is their job they don't also go home and watch Netflix they don't also like have kids they don't also like to you know go for a bike ride on the weekends like like you said there's still people at the end of the day and and i think what you just mentioned there like with the little doodling sketchbook thing like i mean you're you're essentially saying at the end of the day i mean if you have a ceo of a major company engaging in that there's still a little bit of kid in all of us that can be brought up.
1: i'm going right? to i'm going to pile on to that because i actually think it's so important we are a core business. We're selling dreams, it's opportunity. But we've, we've entered into a new vertical that is largely sold by RFP. So we're constantly put into a grid with Excel spreadsheets, things. And back in our agency days, we had been told that we have to do an RFP. And we like, we have a really unique solution. There's literally no one who does what we do, but fine, we'll put it into this RFP template. And one of the questions was uh, drop in your financials. And we understand what they were asking was. Can you prove that you're solvent? You can prove that you're not gonna create a big problem for us with going out of business, but we were privately held. Our financials weren't as good as larger companies. We did not want to post them. So instead we said, we understand that you are looking for assurances that we have a very long track record. We have investors, we've never been sued. We, you know, sterling reputation, but we can't share our financials. So instead we're gonna provide something really valuable, which is like a project manager's grandmother's marinara recipe and we pasted <laughs> a marinara recipe. This is a financial services company that is humorless. And we pasted this recipe in. And it's the whole thing, so we go through and then we're like fingers crossed, but we, co- we couldn't just say we cannot provide. We, we wanted to provide some context and then we wanted to humanize. You wanna know that we're trustworthy. Mm-hmm. We're showing you we're a bunch of people here who are gonna take your business really seriously. And and we have grandmothers, like we have grandmothers, like this is, this is not a fly-by-night you know, group. And not only did we win the business, but the procurement officer said, "This is the first time in my thirty-year career I ever laughed." People forget that procurement people are people, and they're bored. Don't be boring. You know, one of our core, you know core values is uh, evolved into make work interesting, to be less sort of like you know aggressive and don't be boring. But mm-hmm. really important, it's like when you're selling to people, they want to work with people they like, and if you have a chance of being competent or competent and funny, 97.8% of people choose the latter. Yep, so you might, yep. you might as well make it fun. There are all kinds of reasons from a behavioral science perspective to be funny. And, and those lessons learned when you're selling one-to-one and you see their faces and hear their voices and get their reactions, we have brought it into an environment where you don't have that kind of intimate exposure to every customer, even though you want it. You just, there's not enough time in the day and the way selling and buying happens is different. But we don't, we don't forget those lessons that come from sitting at the knee of valued customers and working with them for months on end.
0: You talked about this, like, you know, one of the core values. It was don't be boring. It's now evolved to make work uh, interesting or make work more interesting. In this transition, this pivot from agency to SaaS, I'm curious what, um, along that line of values, like what mindsets or values carried over and what mindsets or values needed to be Tabled or, or, or tossed away.
1: So, from a core values perspective, literally nothing changed, right? We we didn't change our core values at all. But it is very different to to build products based on what one customer wants at a time versus to try to listen or extrapolate the listening to to thousands. So, we were very slow and very late in really building true product you know, capital P product functions at Jellyvision. And a lot of our, our sort of the transition has has caused not just technical debt where you're used to doing things once and then as long as it stays live, you're good versus saying this is something we're investing in that's going to have like 3,000 customers on it and it needs to have legs and it, you can't, you know, bury the bodies all over the place and not create a problem where you have to, you know, really think about technical debt. But we had, you know, process debt and org debt. Where We have to think about you know, how do we have a vision that is ours and make sure that vision is valuable, but it's not what do you want us to build and what do you want us to build. It's like what do we as a team think is going to solve the problems plaguing our customers, and then how do we connect the dots so that customers understand the value they're going to get versus you tell us what to build and we'll build it. One of the biggest problems I've seen in companies that go from services to um, SaaS is that salespeople don't know how to say, no, we don't do that. In an agency, you can build whatever you want. Yeah, and here's the price tag. You want that? And here's the price tag. If you, if you don't have salespeople able to sell within a box of, we don't do that, we're not planning to do that, and here's why. Um, and I'll say one seriously amazing thing about Jellyvision is our salespeople have always been able to navigate of, we don't do that, and I'm not going to promise it to you to get the sale here's what we've invested in, here's what our solution does. It doesn't do that, it's not gonna do that, but we are really balancing how to solve the big macro trend problems around healthcare versus this one little niche thing that you want, or we figured out ways to help customers to put their fingers on the product without creating technical debt. But one of the biggest challenges is when you go from that small customer base where you're really consultatively selling and really building them exactly what they want, and large customers expect customization large customers, right? I write big checks. I get exactly what I want. There, there's an expectation you have to fight. And that's probably one of the biggest mistakes the companies make As you start to get to scale. You have to be less specific or you will be plagued with technical debt that will bring you to your knees in four to five years after four to five years of growth. And I just, I just want to give recognition. I've seen it in other companies. I've not seen a jelly vision because our, our reps have learned how to say with all due respect, no. It's not what we do, and here's why.
0: On that note, how has your team maybe altered or navigated the difference in the pricing conversation? Because as an agency, in a way, pricing is very much this like concept uh, that can always be modified. Whereas when you're selling a product, I, I think it's 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 a different sort of scenario where there is an idea, there's a set price on something, but depending on company, depending on the salesperson, they also view that as a sliding scale, but but in a different way, because they're just like, oh, if I discount, I can get it versus, well, sure, if you want to do this, we can add scope, we can reduce scope to meet your needs. So how does the pricing, or how has the pricing conversation differed?
1: I think there's sort of an evolution, and it. it also matters. It's easier to grow in your SaaS if, if if you're making something valuable. It is just easier because anybody you successfully work with, and you do a good job for, like next year, they're there. And then if you work just as hard, your business doubles. Like that's the reality of SaaS versus services. And there might be a little bit of churn, and there might be some upsell. But like the reality is, if you just work equally hard year after year in SaaS that you know, when you, the business should come close to doubling and that is not true with services. If you wanna grow in services, you typically, you, know, you wanna grow by 10%, you have to work 10% more and have 10% more people. But one of the, the differences that relates to both you know, services to SaaS but also to scale is when you first go to market and you're teeny tiny, you're telling your story, the founder story, the vision story. And early adopters really lean in and they love like, oh, I'm so obsessed with the problem that you're solving that I'm willing to take a risk on a teeny tiny company. And very often they'll pay you the most, believe it or not. Everyone discounts early demos and prototypes. I'm like, don't. The people crazy enough to work with a high risk startup are also the biggest believers. Charge accordingly. A lot of service work for us was just like, how much do we think you have? How much do you think you have? Mm -hmm. And as we've grown in a SaaS business, the storytelling is not about the founder, the vision, the why. It's about customer successes. Our social proof is now other people in your shoes that have walked before you and our benchmark around pricing are other SaaS solutions that you may be buying. So it's incredibly contextualized very differently from us and you and how much money do you have and you know, what's, what's the dream vision we can sell to. There is ethos of other companies. This is what they're investing. This is the ROI we're getting and you already have these things on the roster. This is where we fit in proportionally. And it's, it's not like if we think you have more money, do we charge you more? We don't, that game is over. Our job now is to show the return you're gonna get for the investment in our software and how it is superior in terms of the, the magnitude of the problem, the urgency of the problem, and the value you get versus other things you could do. Because it's not just money. Customers have limited time, right? Focus, attention, is, you, you are battling for oxygen uh, on the priorities list as much as you're you know battling sometimes for limited budget. Uh, and so it's just how do we fit in? Why is this the right problem to solve right now? And here's the price. And here's why it makes sense. Whereas truly in the agency days, we're like, how much money do we think they have? <laughs> because we want to yeah. ask for like 10% more and then negotiate back down. But we want to we want to leave nothing on the table. It's a different strategy right now. And sometimes you charge too much. And sometimes you charge too little. But that's sass.
0: Which is, and that's also why I think a lot of people mistrust agencies because they're and they hate that part of the conversation because they have to like offer up budget first before the other person will say what their stuff actually costs. Actually, an interesting anecdote from a SaaS company that's a client of mine. Um, they had a rep who was on their way out of the company and was trying to get a deal in, like right before they left just so you know they could get the commission off of it or you know get it towards their quota for their final paycheck and so what they did was they discounted the price by 50 percent, but they didn't say it was a discount they just said the price is you know hypothetically it was like the price is 20k when the price is like is supposed to be 40k and the sales leader was telling me like you know that's a story for the books because they actually called us afterwards when the person transitioned and, and you know we, we assigned someone else to that deal. And they said, we, have a, we really are struggling to trust you right now because we talked to like four of your competitors and they all cost 2x of what you cost and they're giving us the same stuff. So what aren't you telling us here? Like, why are you 50% less? Yeah. And the sales leader was like, we have, and he's like, somehow miraculously, we've talked them back to the table, but we almost lost a deal. Because our rep who was leaving thought a discount was the best way to go. But in fact, they trust us less when we discounted or not even discount, just saying the price was less was the best way to go. And and they trust us less because we gave them a lower price.
1: So what's the lesson there? The The lesson there is simple to me as pricing is marketing. Your price communicates to customers' expectations. Really high-priced software, people expect it to do all the jobs they want it to do. And then some really low-priced software, you kind of, like, make do. Your expectations are lower, and the art is kind of finding the middle where you extract as as much value as you can while setting appropriate expectations. And I I see a lot of SaaS companies in the early days charge very low rates because to them, any money is a win, not realizing that just because you're poor and all startups are, 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 like, Poor in terms of like money coming, in. so you're desperate for it. You always have to contextualize it against what your competitive set is and what customers are used to spending. Because if you walk in and say, "I'm just desperate to get this deal," I'm going to charge you 10k for something that I will eventually charge 50k for. Um, you're saying my solution isn't fully baked, my team isn't isn't fully mature. I'm I'm going to get a haircut somewhere because when I you know it, it, it's marketing. It's it's an incredibly important art and science, but art, art and marketing, uh, where you're setting expectations about the quality and, and depth of experience out of the gates about what a customer can expect. And I more often than I see startups charging too much, I see startups charging too little and potentially raising red flags about the quality and depth of products accordingly. Like I yeah, would say, I, I would say like charge more. Charge more until people say you're charging too much. And it's, it's sort of like the evolution of like, if you're really doing something that is valuable, and that's a whole thing you really can't scale if you haven't like solved problems. But if you've solved problems, particularly for large companies, charge more, charge more, charge more.
0: For those who have not heard yet, who are listening to this, I recommend rewind back to a few episodes back this season where we did an episode with Adam Springer and the topic was literally how to raise your pricing. So uh, that's very much in step with what Amanda is saying here. One more question before we hit our wrap up. Um, I'm curious to know um, when you made this transition and you built a team who knows the company to be a certain thing, this agency, this we build custom solutions, and then you're like, well, actually, we're going to become a software company. That's our path forward. That's our vision. Did you face resistance internally and perhaps in accordance with that, were there parts as you became the software company where you were like, "Oh my God, this is not going to work"?
1: No, and yes. Really try to explain why. Like the reality is, there can be feast and famine with services business. But we don't line things up perfectly. And where's the next project? Where's the next project? Oh, thank goodness, it just dropped in in the nick of time. Like there's a feast or famine to services businesses that isn't. Super fun, right? So the idea of saying more predictable revenue more, you know recurring revenue, you know better solvency th- those kinds of things like people like yes Do you people are smart like yes, that makes sense? If there wasn't resistance But there was sadness because one of the things that happens in an agency that doesn't happen Or happened in our agency, but didn't happen in our SaaS company is because we were a solution in search of a problem we would learn about 10 different businesses a year 20 different businesses a year, 30 different businesses a year where you're learning about sleep disorders and IUDs and CAD software and Salesforce editions and and schools that kids can go to and various things around healthcare. Like Because of the breadth of our portfolio, we learned a lot about a lot and that the mental gymnastics about having to deeply immerse yourself and become a master in something really quickly is fun for curious people. And a lot of those people who just like to eat that sandwich of something entirely new once a quarter, which was about the length of our projects. Once you go to SAS, the challenge isn't like you're immersing yourself in an entirely new business, entirely new pain. It's the same pain. It's the same problem. It's like, how do we do it more effectively? How do we iterate? How do we build out, you know, the next generation solution, but it's not a fundamentally clean slate challenge. And so for the really, really curious that can be a sad transition of like, what's Jolly Vision going to be doing in five years? Alex. <laughs> okay. Y- you know, And then so it's like, what's going to be great about Alex? We're going to solve problems in new ways. We're going to have more customers. We're going to have a bigger business. We're going to be more valuable and helpful to the customers that we solve. We're going to find 10 new ways to be the most amazing SaaS vendor ever. But it's not like we're going to have picked up and learn, you know, ed tech, we're now like experts. Like we know enough to be dangerous in ed tech in this category, in that category. So that, that was the sadness, uh, but th- there wasn't resistance. And do, do we think we're going to fail? Like the way I sort of describe um, startups is there are, it's like this, it's crazy ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And, and they happen even in the same meeting where you might think we're going to get this deal and then we're going to get all the deals and we're going to take over the world To I'm not only going to not get this deal, I'm going to get no deals. I'm going to have to shut down the company. I'm the biggest failure in the world. The highs and lows are so fast and furious in your early days. Like in, extreme. An, <laughs> in, in, a, in a 30 minute meeting, you high, low, high again. When you grow, it's not like those highs and lows stop. They just have more space in between them. So it's really rare that you might think you're both gonna dominate the world and utterly fail in the same 30 minute meeting, but in a week, you can get news that you're like, this is the best thing ever and oh no, I'm gonna do the crawl of shame home to my parents and be like, can I live in your basement? So it's still there. And I, I think anyone who like really doesn't worry when they're responsible for paying paychecks of other people, like to say that you don't worry, I don't know if they're like just so much of a better operator than I am or delusional but there's always worry. There's always like a new competitor where you're like, ooh, that sounds interesting, mm. or a, a change in the way things work, or new technology like you know, flash to HTML, you know, five G. What do all these things mean? Like the world isn't standing still. So yeah, there's worry. But uh, like as long as we get the truth, you know, like you can't handle the truth. No, we can handle the truth. As long as we understand the truth about what matters to our customers, I believe we're capable of building solutions that will solve their problems and just stay on our toes accordingly.
0: Something I was actually telling my students in a yoga class this past week was, I kind of themed it around this idea of like navigating ups and downs. And I was like, but if you think of like, think of a sine cosine graph where you have the waves going up and down, there's that constant horizontal zero line. And if we look at ourselves as the zero line and the, the ups and downs are passing events, we understand we are a base in that whole process. We are the constant and that there's like, you don't get pulled down as much. Not they don't affect you. They definitely will. But rather than thinking the high will last forever, thinking the low will last forever, you understand it's like you're this constant zero line that all these things just pass through. Hmm. Let's go to our wrap-up here. Where can our listeners find you? Find Jellyvision and learn more.
1: Jellyvision.com, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the places we're there. Jellyvision, J-E-L-L-Y-V-I-S-I-O-N.com.
0: The question you told me would be the hardest to answer. Who is one person that you want to shout out? Could be a teammate, colleague, friend, mentor, advisor, investor, etc.
1: Yeah, this has been a really hard year. It's been a roller coaster. And Jellyvision has had some very low lows and is ending on very high highs. And so when that happens, it releases all kinds of like, you know, serotonin and dopamine. And it makes you incredibly grateful. So just picking one was really hard. And so I'm going to go with recency bias. Jellyvision just rolled out a stipend, just a $400 stipend. Like we know you're at home, go do something nice for yourself to make your home office better, whatever it is. If it's buying chips or cheese, it's like we used to have in the office. If it's upgrading your chair, whatever it is, just like, here you go, go do something to make your work home, you know, your work life better for you. And it's like, you know, all companies are doing it. It's not exceptional. It's very much what companies are doing. But an employee wrote a note to me and our chief of staff who was behind this initiative and just said, I so appreciate taking the time to do this. Thanks for always having our backs. And I I don't want to be cheesy. That's the word she used. Her name is Amanda Kellogg. She said, I want to be cheesy, but I just wanted to, 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 you know, thank you. And that happened this morning. And I was thinking about what a great reminder of how nice it is to be nice and how positivity and optimism create positivity and optimism and that gratitude begets gratitude. She didn't need to write that email, that little note, but it like, it really did make me, feel all those things. And I just thought it was, Amanda Kellogg reminded me that like good vibes are contagious and needed more than ever. So I want to shout out kindness begetting kindness and and gratitude begetting gratitude. And just that reminder that like putting energy into being positive and optimistic, optimistic, in fact, makes people feel more positive and optimistic. And boy, do we need that now more than ever.
0: I like that. Amanda for Bringing out the kindness and the gratitude and and helping us, remind us to be positive and optimistic and to help others in the same way. Let's go to our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first, and I'll toss it to you. Topic today, uh, as obvious, as pivoting from agency to SaaS. Um, I had uh, two things that I think were key here. Um, Very, at the very beginning, you talked about how not all dollars are created equal. Uh, and I very much agree with that, so I think that 's a big lesson from this. The other thing is it seems like through all parts of this journey, communication was a huge component of it, whether it was whether it 's communicating to prospects, what your value proposition is, whether it 's communicating pricing in a certain way or communicating internally here's the direction of the company, here's where we're going. A lot of these events can happen and go horribly wrong if the communication behind it is poor. And so I think how we actually talk about these things matters. Amanda, top one or two lessons or takeaways?
1: Uh, Pricing is marketing, and it's really important, especially when you're a startup and paying everybody nothing, which is what startups do. Um, You need to anchor not on your cost Basis, but on what customers are currently writing checks for so that you're proportional and you kind of fit into that story versus your own story of like, my goal is to get to a million in ARR. That's not what customers think about. You really got to keep that pricing as marketing and, and realize what is the customer narrative and how are you contextualized? And the second thing is I think, you know, product people spend a tremendous amount of time on UX UI, making sure at every moment the user experience in your product is great. I think we should bring UX UI to the customer experience. How do we buy? What do our emails look like? What are our meetings like? How do we follow up? How, what do our agendas say? How easy is it to buy from us? What do our contracts look like? Are they in plain English? You know, uh, do we fight you over an NDA? Like, it's just like, I think we need to do UX, UX for the the buying experience, but customers are people too. Right? And, and, And if we spent more time like curating, like how do you buy? What does procurement care about? how can I take the work of getting this deal done off your plate in a way that's still transparent, but helpful? Like how can we be helpful? I think we should bring UX UI to the customer experience as well.
0: On that one thing that I do that many customers appreciate, but my invoices when they go out, the, like the email that goes with it or that's attached to the invoice says, yo, 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 it's time for the hype man to collect his dough and you already know. So don't delay with the dollar sign scroll. <laughs> and be like, and, and like and "Thank day. you,
1: and thank you." Like what said? And also, thank you for keeping us clothed and fed. We really appreciate it. So remember, you're this person, and you know, it's not. It's not just a disbursement; it's your livelihood, and it's. Livelihood. And like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm
0: gonna add that as a suffix. Oh
1: my gosh, of it's like a the amanda kellogg lesson. Like it's it's always good to be grateful and to show it. Like there's there's no like oh they're not gonna pay you but like this isn't just a disbursement. This is our livelihood. Thank you for paying on time. And people will be like, oh, right, it's people. I'm not paying a vendor, I'm paying people, <laughs> you know? And then I like need like to do it.
0: I love that, I love that. Final question to close out, Amanda. Fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. Uh,
1: never linear. This is never this, it's this. Uh, so I say that to just give perspective, it's exhausting but it's also sort of an unprecedented and incredible opportunity to learn and try new things and grow, provided you maintain a healthy sense of humor.
0: Entrepreneurship is never linear. She is Amanda Lannert, CEO of Jelly Vision. Amanda, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Startup Hype Man Podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast, is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea, and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hypeman, the podcast. I'll catch you next week, but in the meantime, word up, raise up.